Well, as you may have picked up by looking ahead in your bulletin, um, both the uh, outline of the message as well as the, the notes and then the title that you can see there in the order of service, we're doing something a little different here this morning. We are getting out of our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's not because we've gotten tired of that, I trust. It's just simply because of the occasion. And the occasion, as I was alluding to last week, and some of you may have been here and heard me say something of those along these lines, it's, it's Reformation Sunday. And that's a tradition within uh, many branches of the church. The uh, Sunday just prior to Reformation Day, which is October 31st each year, that is an annual recognition of the, uh, the, the occasion in which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. And interestingly enough, next year is the 500th anniversary uh, of that occasion. And so just as a little tradition of sorts here in our own congregation over the last several years, we, we take this moment to then look at some of the life and the lessons uh, that we can glean from some key individual and how God worked in and through their lives in a substantial way uh, such that we remember them and reflect back on them. And through the years, we have looked at such individuals as Calvin and, and Luther and Bonhoeffer and Lewis and Spurgeon and Wilberforce and Newton and John, uh, excuse me, William Cooper. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving a few, a few out here. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Augustine, uh, some, something of a giant, I guess, really, in church history. Now, all that said, though, I do feel like I need to begin with this and just sort of lay the, the groundwork and, and maybe even allay some of your fears and concerns uh, as to what we're doing here and why. Uh, why reflect on the contribution of any one man in the context like, of, of a worship service like this where ostensibly our attention is supposed to be upon the true and living God and not upon one of his creatures, right? It, seem, it would seem like I'm, I'm taking us into very dangerous waters here by doing something of a biographical message of, of any kind. Well, let me assure you, to God be the glory. That is the focus and intent and driving uh, import of an impulse of all of this, that he might be praised, not the creature, but the creator. Now, praise can be found, when you think about it, praise can be found in the life of any of his image bearers, of anyone who is made in his image and according to his likeness. We ought to be able to find something praiseworthy in any human being. Fair? Most especially so in the lives of, I'll just put it this way, his saints, his people, his followers, his children, where you can see the obvious manifestations of the gospel at work in the life of that person. John Piper makes this very point. Uh, in uh, his book, The Legacy of Sovereign Joy, which is in a series, a much larger series of several biograph biographical studies of uh, individuals in the course of church history, Piper writes this, God ordains that we gaze on his glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of his flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of their God. So you see, this is not about a person. This is about the God behind the person that made and shaped the person and worked in there. Okay, fine. So we can talk about maybe. It's okay then to talk about a person, a, in this case, a man. But why this man? Why this man? Why Augustine? St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, North Africa. Well, one of his biographers put it this way. 
David Bray. Augustine is by any standard one of the giants of world civilization. Whoa, that's kind of heady. Uh, David Calhoun, church history professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, said Augustine is probably the most important figure in the history of the church after the time of the Apostle Paul. You realize how encompassing that statement is? It's kind of big. And I think it bears out maybe some grounds for what we're doing here this morning. So, that said, I do want to read to you from this text before we get any further. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's in the midst of a, of a group of T's. Uh, what I mean by that is 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and then 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus, and a group of T's, okay? And 1 Timothy kind of sits right there in the middle of all of that. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Hear now God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ must display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? O Lord, indeed, to you be the glory, not to any one of us. Not to any one of us, not to any part of your creation. It is but your creation, and we are but creatures, no matter how lofty and exalted an historian might describe a, an individual from over the course of the years, a, a man even of the stature of Augustine. He would be appalled if we were to give him the glory. We ought to be as well. But Lord, we are asking that you would indeed help us to gaze on your glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of this flawed servant. That you would encourage us as we see what you did in and through his life. That you might encourage and embolden us as to what you might long to do in and through our own. To the King of Ages immortal and visible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, real quickly. I don't have time to do an exegesis on this text. In some ways, you could consider everything I'm about to say about Augustine as a living illustration of that text. So when I, you could, if, if you're nervous about me doing a biographical message, here's how I'll put, put your mind at ease. For the next 30 seconds, I'm going to preach a sermon on 1 Timothy 1. The rest is an illustration. Okay? So 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17, Paul is reflecting back on his life and upon Christ's purposes 
in his life. And he recognizes, as he looks back years later, he knows himself to have been a man who, for all appearances, was hopelessly lost. A callous, self-righteous murderer, hell-bent on an inquisition. And he reflects back, though, upon that day on that Damascus road when he met the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus. Or better yet, Jesus met him. And it flipped everything upside down. Paul was never the same. It says in our English translations, and the ESV is, is fine, great, better than, than most. And it's, but it puts it this way, but there's actually a better way. I think that it might help us to see this. And it's in verse 13 and verse 16. The clause is, but I receive mercy. And we understand that because that's, you know, those are words that we are, company, are comfortable using. But a literal translation of those, that clause is, but I was mercied. Paul is saying, despite all I was, despite all I did, despite all that I was about, I was mercied. And he can't get over that. He, he cannot get over that. It defines him. It drives him. That unleashed an overwhelming, superabundant, overflowing supply of grace in his life. He was mercied. It was a work of God's grace, His sovereign grace, in him and through him for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now you ask, okay, that's great. But what's the relevance of all that to Augustine? Oh my goodness, that's the pattern of Augustine's very story. Paul's account here of his own life in 1 Timothy 1 is amazingly paralleling Augustine's as well. And I would add, can be our own as well. Here's where I want to drive at the simple but I would say significant point. That is, the gospel is a message. The gospel is a message of the sovereign grace of God. It is a message that we must embrace if we would be changed. Let me say that again. The gospel is a message of the sovereign grace of God, a message that we must embrace that we would be changed. All right, let me give you a brief, brief biographical sketch here of Augustine of Hippo. I spent an hour on doing the same thing in the last hour. I'm going to boil that down, make it real simple and quick, throw in a few extras for those of you who are here in the last hour so you don't have to check out and you know, take a nap for the next few minutes. So his life, has two, basically breaking it down in two ways, his life and his contributions, mostly his life. His origins, where he came from, North Africa, born in the year 354, in what we refer to know now today as modern Algeria. Uh, we need to pay especially close attention to his mother. Her name was Monica. That is a Berber name, which means she is indigenous from that part of the world there in North Africa. She was a godly woman, great influence upon her son, and a great heart for him as well. Uh, one of the uh, things that Augustine wrote of was an, an accounting that his uh, mother must have passed on to him 
One instance in which his mother Monica was pouring out her heart to a, a bishop, I don't know where it was, uh, just this ache that she had for the spiritual state of her son. The bishop then replies this way, it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. Such is the heart of this mother for her son. Her son was a brilliant but wayward youth, um, especially when it came to women. And it began very early. In his teenage years, he lived in a common law marriage with another woman for some 15 years. They had a son together. He eventually left her for a higher strata woman, an arranged marriage. It actually never panned out. It never happened. He ended up moving in with another woman. And before that could even come to fruition, uh, he, his waywardness, he describes himself as, as something of a vagabond mind, uh, was attracted to philosophies of various kinds of the day, awakened uh, to a desire and search for truth as he was reading the uh, Greek philosopher Cicero, uh, was, became entrenched in a, in a cult, a trendy cult known in the day as Manichaeism. Um, talk about that in a few more minutes. He was involved in that for about 10 years, though. Begin to see the folly of all that, falls into deep, profound skepticism, wonders if there's really anything to be found anywhere, drifts into Neoplatonism, kind of this um, religious mysticism, I suppose you could say, as far as what that involved. Eventually, the Lord gets his man. If you've ever read uh, that long, old poem, The Hound of Heaven, it could definitely describe something of... Uh, of Augustine's experience here. Uh, the providence of God at work, he, has a, he, he throws himself into a career of rhetoric, meaning of public speaking, and, and eloquence and elegance in, in speaking, and the sharpness and accuracy and preciseness of words to be persuasive. But he recognizes that he's just, he doesn't even care about truth. I mean, he's just speaking, just trying to persuade, no matter if he even believes it. A vendor of words is how he describes himself, but that comes into play later the skill set that he learns in the course of all of that. He uh, leaves um, the little town where he grew up, Thagast, goes to Carthage to study. He ends up going to Rome. He ends up going to Milan, climbing up the professional ladder, I guess you could say. Um, therein, he comes under the teaching and influence of a man named Ambrose, who was the bishop of Milan. This is God's hand upon Augustine, clearly. Uh, he is in, uh, impressed with the brilliance of Ambrose's oratory, but also the kindness of the man is breaking down Augustine's defenses. He also comes into contact with a book, the biography of St. Antony, who was a desert monastic guy, leaves everything, goes out and, and lives this life of asceticism, and like again, kind of like a monk. Um, Augustine's drawn to this, curious about this. How could this, this be? What would make a man do such... A thing, but chiefly so, he's drawn. He, he's impacted by the power of the scriptures. In 386, he is converted, and we read something of his account of his own conversion. And I have it here, quotes and notes. It's uh, the third one. I want to read this to you. It takes place in a garden. It's perhaps one of the most famous um, and at least most important conversion stories in the history of the Western Church. Uh, 386. It's in a garden. And this is what Augustine tells us. As I, saw, as I was saying this and weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house ch chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, I do not know which, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. At once my countenance changed and I began to think intently whether there might be some sort of children's game in which such a chant is used. 
but I could not remember having heard of one. I checked the flood of tears and stood up. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. By the way, I wouldn't suggest that as a general principle of Bible study. But So I hurried back to the place where Olypius, a friend of his, was sitting. Then I had put down the book of the Apostle Paul. When I got up, I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. This is what he read from Romans 13. Nor in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lust. Bam! That's what he needed. It was in that moment, in that garden, as he's reading from Romans 13, a broken man that all the loose strands in his life come together and the light dawns. And he is a follower of Jesus. As a Christian, at that point, he tries to makes his, eventually makes his way back to North Africa, 388, desiring a life of contemplation, not surprisingly, given the culture and the context and the influence of Antony upon him, likely. He wants to start a monastery. That's his plan. That plan blows up because God has another plan. He goes to Hippo, this little out-of-the-way backwater town. He figures, well, that's a place that I can do this. God has other designs on his life. He ends up being ordained as a priest and then later as a bishop just a few years later. I said this in the last hour. He wept at the moment, at the time of his ordination, but clearly it was not. they were not tears of joy in any way at all because he had an inkling of what was coming. And so he was uh, resistant but willing. As the Bishop of Hippo in 395, he uh, is a pastor. He's a prolific author. Uh, just fly through some, some 1,000 works of his are said to have been written. Over 200 books. His biographer tells us that he wrote anti-Donatist, anti-Pelagian writings. I'll explain that in just a minute, what that refers to. Profound writings and reflections on the Trinity, also the city of God. Now, if, if maybe if it was a separate sermon, maybe next week if we were to do it, but we're not, we could talk about that book, the city of God and its important influence on us today. And I will tell you, there's a lot of smart people I know, given all the political craziness of our day in these times, who are finding their sanity going back to this early 5th century book by Augustine, the, the, the city of of God. The context was Rome had fallen. Uh, the Roman citizens, many, were putting their blame on the fall of the Roman Empire upon Christianity, saying, look, if we hadn't abandoned the pagan gods, this wouldn't have happened. Rome would still be standing. And the, and the city of God is Augustine's mammoth, wise, insightful response, rebuke to that accusation. His contribution, just real quick, um, it really doesn't matter what wing of Christendom you're standing on. Everybody loves Augustine. Roman Catholics say he is the doctor of the church. Protestants say he is the theologian of grace. Trying to thread all of that and make sense of all that, B.B. Warfield, the great uh, 19th century theologian from Princeton, put it this way, the Reformation was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church gives you a, a sense, a glimpse, an inkling of the breadth of the man's writings. Okay, that's your introduction, that's your sketch. Now I want to drive into that point that I, I said we wanted to be making here. But you need to have some context, some understanding of, of, of some of this man's life. Again, the, the, this is what we need to understand. The gospel flows out of 
1 Timothy 1. It flows out of the whole of Scripture. It flows out of, as an example, Augustine's own life. The gospel is a message of the sovereign grace of God, a message we must embrace if we would be changed. Now, let's talk about reflections on God's sovereign grace here for a moment. Augustine is often known for his keen intellect and his sharp mind. Some of his most important works were written against heresies of different kind. In those days, at least, whatever else you want, we want to say about advancements we've made since, at least in those days, people recognized the danger of heresy. They recognized it as a spiritual disease that put people's spiritual health, individual health, and the larger body at risk and in danger. And so Augustine was willing to go there. He was willing to, to challenge these, these things. And now there were several, to be sure, uh, that, that he had to engage with and do battle with, but there are three chiefly. And I just want to fly through the first two and camp out on the third. And the three are these. The Manichees, the Donatists, and the Pelagians. The Pelagians, that's where I want to land on. The, Donat the, the Manichees, they were a cult. Uh, it was, as I said in the last hour, a third century Gnostic movement from Persia. Uh, a, kind of a hodgepodge synthesis, kind of a, a, a stew of different belief systems, pulling a little over here, a little over there. One author, I, as I read, said it's something like a California uh, religion. Uh, addressing, this was the chief aim behind it, was to address the problem of evil. They understand that, because, you know, that, that's, yeah, we got to deal with that and come to grips with that, at least in some way. But the problem was their solution, which was no solution at all. Uh, it was trying to, to separate, to say that the physical is all bad, the material is all bad, and God is somehow removed from all of that, and Augustine says that's rubbish. Good. There's no, this dualistic idea that you have is crazy. It's not that good and evil are these two competing forces. Rather, evil is simply the absence of good. That's what evil is. He said a lot more behind that, but anyway, pressing on. The Donatists. So the Manichees, that's a cult. The Donatists were a schismatic group, causing all kinds of trouble within the churches. And the, the, the context of this is... Um, recent decades of persecution and the question regarding, well, what do we do with certain priests? Certain priests remained steadfast in the midst of that, but others didn't. So now we're on the other side of all of this. Do we recognize them as being valid? Do we recognize the sacraments that they perform and the preaching that, and the lessons that they give as being valid and worth listening to? And there was this, you know, sort of this super hyper pure view of what the church was and wasn't. And Augustine, speaking into that, says, we, look, somehow we've got to allow for the imperfections in the body without at the same time condoning sin. And then he spoke very strongly against the schisms and the disunity that these individuals were causing. He was livid about this, the schisms and the separations that they were causing and the unrest within the church. Okay, so the Manichees, a cult, the Donatists, uh, Schismatics, Pelagians, Heretics. Heretics. Pelagius. Pelagius was a well-intended but misguided British monk. He comes to Rome with the desire to um, work with the urban poor and the dock workers, but he is scandalized, he is appalled, he is offended immediately by these two things that he sees in the city of Rome. One the licentiousness and ungodliness of people who profess to be Christians. He can't get over that. Here's the second thing. 
that he believes to be causing something of that. Augustine. Augustine's writings, in particular the Confessions. I'll talk about that here in just a second. Phrases like this and ideas like this, and this is at the bottom of your quotes and notes. It's the fifth one. Where Augustine writes, My entire hope is exclusively in your great mercy. Grant what you command and command what you will. Grant what you command and command what you will. You see, Pelagius' response to this is, Are you crazy? You are giving people an excuse for passivity and licentiousness and ungodliness. Look, if you tell people they can, they cannot do anything without God, they won't try to do anything. That's Pelagius' perspective. And by the way, that's the very thing Paul's opponents said. And you can see that when you read between the lines in Romans. His teaching, Pelagius then begins this, I don't know, a campaign of sorts. And it, it's typified by this phrase, you are able. You are able. He would have done really well today in a lot of Christian bookstores and on a lot of Christian cable TV channels. He would have been a great megachurch pastor. You can do it. You are able. Everyone is born into this world neutral. We're not born sinners. We have the possibility to do good and bad. It's, it's openness. You pick. You choose. It's up, it's up to you. Goodness and even perfection is attainable by us, is what Pelagius said. As one uh, theologian said, Pelagius is putting forward this idea, justification by decency. In response to that, biblically grounded response to that, Augustine says, no, you are not able. God is able. God is able. Adam was created perfect, but in sinning, lost the freedom of his will. As the children of Adam, we are born sinners. And so we are unwilling and unable then to do good. And so God's grace is absolutely essential for salvation. Think about what we read from Ephesians 2 a little while ago. It's absolutely essential for our salvation. Paul, excuse me, not well, Augustine stemming off of Paul, writes this, The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord must be understood as that by which alone we are delivered from evil and without which we do absolutely no good things. The grace of God is absolutely essential and God freely gives His grace to some. Now we don't know why to some and not to all and why to these and not to those. Augustine doesn't try and solve that riddle, that puzzle. He, he says God's equity, God's justice is so secret that it is beyond the reach of all human understanding. God's grace is absolutely essential. He gives it to who He will. And growth in grace is possible, but perfection is only going to come in heaven. Again, countering the myths of Pelagius and the heresy, frankly, of Pelagius. Now, this is one of the things that Augustine is known for. So move, moving now from the battle for the gospel, there in your outline, the battle for the gospel, to the story, a story of the gospel. This is certainly one of the things that Augustine is known for, this fight. But why? Why bother? I mean, you're a, you're a local pastor. You've got a lot on your plate. Why get involved in all this other stuff? Two reasons. One, his reverence for and study of the Word. And two, a memory of his own experience. 
a memory of his own experience, despite his own, despite all of his seeking, or I think we could even say more accurately, behind all of his seeking, he knew who sought him. The seeker himself, the Lord. And there are stakes in play with all of this. So he was gripped by the grace of God. It formed all that he was. Which then takes us to the Confessions. What is that? The Confessions of Augustine. Um, Gail Kanita, in her entry in Invitation to the Classics, describes the Confessions this way. By any one of a number of standards, the Confessions of Augustine is a, is a classic. It's generally considered the first full-scale autobiography of the ancient world and one of the most influential spiritual autobiographies of all time. The Confessions, however, is not simply one man's story. As readers throughout the centuries have noted, it is the story of everyone who has journeyed from worldliness, ambition, and despair to salvation and joy by the grace of God. I will tell you, if you will but read it, you will read yourself into it. You will feel it, what Augustine is writing there. Why, why is it called Confessions? Why not uh, testimony or something like that? For three reasons. One, because he is certainly, I'm going to speak to this in a second, acknowledging full out his own sin and folly. He is also, at the same time, secondly, this is a profession of faith, a confession, if you will, of his faith. And it is also, thirdly, it is a declaration of God's glory, God's grace, God's beauty, God's work, his providence in Augustine's life. Who's it written to? Three audiences. I don't mean to pair up all these threes, but three audiences. Uh, to Augustine, it's something he's almost talking to himself as you're reading through it. That's, that's partly it. Uh, also, to the, to the larger world, he clearly intends for people to be reading over his shoulder, if you will. But chiefly, the audience is God. If you read the Confessions, you realize the whole thing is one long prayer. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every paragraph in it is one long prayer to God. Now let me make this observation, kind of thematic, of the whole thing. Which I, I want, and this is why I'm, I'm saying this, how the story of the gospel is connected to the battle for the gospel. Okay, Those aren't just points I threw down on the paper. I want you to see a ca causal connection between those things. Okay, The story of the gospel being connected to the battle for the gospel. Okay? Um, he, Augustine lays himself out with great candor and honesty and transparency. At least these two categories. In the lies he once believed and in the, the life he once lived. The lies he once believed. I mean, I've alluded to some of this already, but I'm going to throw in some new things too. That he confesses, he lays it out. Look, there was a time I found the Bible to be ridiculous to be simplistic, to be crude, just to be offensively so, especially, especially compared to the eloquence of the classical writers, Cicero and some of, of the others. He acknowledges fully, he lays it out toward his audience uh, that, look, he was attracted to the dualism of Manichaeism. Even astrology and the philosophy of Plato and, and others. He acknowledges, he lays it out. He, he describes this vagabond, wayward mind that went over here and went over here and just mm, following any and everything that he could find that had any inkling of truth to it. He's laying himself bare before his audience in terms of the things that he once believed and also the way he once lived. He says, from the very start, this was me and I was a wretch. 
absolutely a rush. He, he tells this story, I mentioned this in the last hour, of how early on, I think about 16 years old, he and some friends uh, decide to steal these pears off of a pear tree. And he's reflecting on the, the, what you can, he could glean from his, the state of his heart in that. And here's a quote from the Confessions. I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. Such was my heart, O oh God, such was my heart. I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. I was foul and I loved it. He's just laying it out. And then as he moves from a fagast on to Carthage, to the, to the, you know, he's a small town boy who goes on to the big city. And in the Confessions he says, I came to Carthage and all around me hissed. Get the language here. All around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. I was in love with love. And I hated safety in a path free of snares. I was glad to be in bondage. Tied with troublesome chains with the result that I was flogged with red-hot iron rods of jealousy, suspicion, fear, anger, and contention. He's not holding anything back. He's laying it out. This is a tell-all tale. This is in your second quote there in your quotes and notes. He says this, But I was an unhappy young man, wretched as at the beginning of my adolescence when I prayed you for chastity and said, now get the weirdness, the doubleness, dualness of this prayer, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. I was afraid you might hear my prayer quickly, and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust, which I preferred to satisfy rather than suppress. He's laying all this out as a student. He tells the whole... How do we know of the fact he took this woman as a mistress for 15 years? He tells us in the Confessions. Augustine is the source material in all of this. And I, I think I said this earlier. He, he, years later, he dismisses her. Despite his deep love for her, dismisses her, rips his, his heart apart, but all for an arranged marriage that never actually came about. And the last thing I want to just point out this thing. Time and again, he speaks candidly on this point. The hurt he caused his mother and how that grieved him. He says, My mother, your faithful servant, wept for me before you more than mothers weep when lamenting their dead children. Reflecting back on an instance when he deceived her in order to sneak off to Rome. Just horrible deception. And we talked about this last hour. And the water he makes reference here to, by the way, is the water of baptism. This is what he said. This water was to wash me clean and to dry the rivers flowing from my mother's eyes, which daily before you irrigated the soil beneath her face. It's eloquent, high, beautiful language, but obviously speaking of something true and terrible. My friends, this is the story of the gospel, the confessions, Augustine's story of God's sovereign grace meeting him despite. He was mercied. He was mercied, just as Paul was. It's my long illustration, right? He was mercied by the grace of God. And that story of the gospel is a drove his battle for the gospel. The, the, getting the letter C, the impact. It is simple, readable, beautiful prose, the confession. A model, oh my goodness, a model of honesty and transparency, of humility and candor. But ask yourself this question. How is that possible? How can this man 
of such standing and stature in his community, in the church, amidst all the other clergy who looked up to him, how could he dare take the risk of writing in this way? Do you see how he's exposing his throat? He's burying his chest. Laying it all out. It was a great risk. His components could, and by the way, did take advantage of this. See, you can't, you can't believe him. Look what he wrote about himself. It happened. He, he could open himself up to being misunderstood and was. And he knew he would be. How can you take such a... Because his restless heart had become a heart set free to rest. His restless heart had been set free to rest. The first quote, top of your quotes page. Perhaps one of the most oft-quoted passages in all the confessions. And it's right in the very beginning, the first page. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. His restless heart had become a heart set free to rest, free from the surface idols of power and sex and money, free from the, the, the control and the, the tyranny of, of, of the deeper idols of, of security and control and comfort and ease and approval and affection. He had, he, those things had been exposed for what they were and the emptiness of all that they are, displaced in his heart by Christ. Christ as the true and living one. By the power of the Spirit, through the message of the Gospel, this man had been transformed. And that's what enabled him to be transparent. He had been transformed, and that's what enabled him to be transparent. He recognized, I've got nothing to hide. Who are you to judge me? I mean, literally. Everything I've done was laid on Jesus on the cross. And I now have the approval of who, whose opinion actually matters. And footnote, yours doesn't. He's got nothing to hide. Nothing to prove. But praise to give. And so he can lay it out. And be honest. Be candid. Be transparent. His restless heart had become a heart set free to rest and, and, and a heart free to love. A heart free to love. He had eyes to see. He had a heart to see. He had a willingness to engage. Um, years later, he's like 70-some years old, writing in response to a question of a, a friend of his asked, Augustine, come on, man. Why are you staying in this? You're, you know, you're getting kind of old, buddy. I mean, why, you know, let somebody else take the baton here. Do the battle. You've earned a rest. This is what he said in response. First and foremost, because no subject but grace gives me greater pleasure. For what ought to be more attractive to us sick men than grace? Grace by which we are healed. For us lazy men than grace. Grace by which we are stirred up. For us men longing to act than grace by which we are helped. You see, the greatness of this man's life and influence was the fruit of his being transformed by the sovereign grace of God. The greatness of this man's life and influence was a consequence, a fruit of his having been transformed by the sovereign grace of God. Now, what do we do with this? Quickly, application. Thinking about it. 
Well, easy point would be read Augustine. Sure. I mean, I actually do that means seriously. I mean, you know, don't let's not suffer from what C.S. Lewis warned us about with that chronological snobbery, thinking we've got nothing to learn from somebody that far away. Um, and by the way, he probably wasn't just another dead white man. He probably was of darker skin complexion than we think. There's a little jab there. Um, so, read Augustine. That's point number one. Point number two, and it's only two in terms of applications, do a diagnostic. Let's explore the symptoms and the causes and the cures of what ails our hearts. Let's ask ourselves when we come to those points in our lives, and may they come more frequently than they do, that we would be more honest. When we ask ourselves, what's going on with the coldness of my heart toward the spiritual plight of other people? What's going on there? What's going on with my, in my apathy towards spiritual things? What's going on there with my, un, my unwillingness to be transparent? My inability to open up to, to you, to anybody else, and to the Lord. What's going on there? Why am I given towards a life living for security and safety and influence and control and comfort and ease and approval and applause? Why? You know what's going on there? All that's interconnected. All of that is interconnected. Down at the heart-heart level. And what we need is to realize that that's all a symptom of the restlessness of our hearts. Needing to find our rest in the one for whom we were made. And again, the confessions, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The gospel is a message of God's sovereign grace. And we need to embrace that, that we might be changed. And that's not just a once for all thing when we come to Jesus. That's a lifelong thing. That's a daily thing. Embracing this message. So quickly, wrapping this up. So what happened? I'm kind of thinking back like, you know, years ago and telling bedtime stories to our kids and when I was just making them up on the fly and, you know, I wouldn't finish the story, right? And, and so-and-so, you know, they, they're like, well, what happened? You didn't finish the story. Okay, so what happened? Did Augustine and his arguments carry the day? Yes and no. Yes and no. Formally, well, there were some councils called that condemned Pelagianism. Formally, yeah, 418 and 431. Yep, cool. However, there was a lot of resistance. You're kind of behind the scenes from at least two corners, quarters. First, the uh, traditional theologians, because what Augustine was preaching about by, by grace was deemed to be novel and new. There really wasn't a lot of focus on that at that point in the, in the life of the church. Which, by the way, tells you that if what Augustine is saying is novel and new, we've got a problem. Um, so, there's resistance on, on that score. The monasteries. Oh boy. Now think with me. This isn't hard to imagine. If you're a monk, and you've left it all behind, and the reason for that is you believe you can learn, earn brownie points with Jesus... And Augustine is completely pushing against that and blowing that up. You might start asking yourself a question. What the heck am I doing this for? And that's exactly what happened. So, okay, years later we have some other developments. Um, 
the compromise of the Synod of Orange, Synod of Orange 529, about 100 years after Augustine, the compromise goes like this, trying to thread the needle. God saves us, but not without our help. God saves us, but not without our help. You do your part, he'll do his part. Fortunately, in the providence of God, some centuries later, came the Reformation that blew that up and took us back to biblical orthodoxy. Luther and Calvin were students of Augustine, cited him numerous, numerous times. So what about today? What about today? How about the Augustinian legacy of today? Well, my friends, we are still saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That hasn't changed. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But let me say this on this Reformation Sunday. It's not your understanding of that that saves you. You get that? We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but it is not your academic ability to grasp that that saves you. What's the gospel message? The simple message. There is a God who made all things. Sin is real, cause an estrangement temporally and eternally between God and man. He in His grace has sent a Savior, Christ the Lord. Ours is but to put our hope and trust in Him. That's the message. Now, as we sink our roots into that message, we will come to understand better and better and better by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that to the degree that we are grasping that, oh, we will see growth. Oh, we will see flourishing. Oh, we will see adoration and cause for worship and praise and a desire to serve Him. And gladly so. And thankfulness and gratitude and humility and trust in Him and His care over our lives. But how are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Alone. And Augustine, believe it or not, can help us get there if we'll listen to what he says. Let's pray. Pray this uh, prayer of Augustine that's there in your bulletin. Oh God, you are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you. Help us so to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, let's continue in our worship.